0: Preacher got up one Sunday morning and he pulled out uh, four glasses, four glasses. The first glass had some whiskey in it. The second glass had some tobacco in it. The third glass had some chocolate in it. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Hmm. The fourth glass had some dirt, some soil in it. Into the first glass he put, the glass with whiskey in it, he put a worm Into the second glass, the glass with tobacco in it, he put another worm. Into the third glass, the glass with chocolate in it, he put yet another worm. And into the fourth glass, the glass with soil in it, of course, he put a worm. He then placed these glasses on the side of the pulpit and covered them. And then he preached his sermon. And 20 minutes later, when his sermon was done, he uncovered the glasses And lo and behold, the worm in the first glass, the glass with whiskey, was dead. The worm in the second glass, the glass with tobacco, was, of course, dead. The worm in the third glass, the glass with chocolate in it, was fat. No, 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 no. (laughs) He was dead. Oh, what a way to die. Oh, how lucky to go, gorging yourself on chocolate. I can't think of a better way to die. And, of course, the worm in the fourth glass, the glass with soil in it, was alive and doing well. And then the preacher asked his congregation, what does this tell us about how we are to be living our lives? And way in the back, a sweet little old gray-haired lady stood up and said, Preacher, that teaches us that if you drink, smoke, and eat chocolate, you won't have worms. And I get an amen? <laughs> you won't have worms. <laughs> I don't know where I got that from. That's one of those that just kind of floated around and I picked it up somewhere in the dim, misty recesses of the past. You don't always get what you expect and it's not always from the children in the children's time that you get the weird answers, is it? You don't always get what you expect. The Gentiles came to Jesus. Came to see Jesus, came and asked Philip, and Philip went and got Andrew, and then they went to Jesus. And they said they wanted to see Jesus. These Gentiles, these Greeks wanted to see Jesus, and this is unusual. Messiahs are Jewish holy people. Messiahs are for the Jewish people, for the people of the Hebrew faith, not for Gentiles, but these were special Gentiles. These Gentiles, these Greeks, were ones who had been studying the Hebrew faith, who had been learning the Torah, who had been going to synagogues and studying the teachings of Moses. They believed that the Hebrew people had a, a, a true understanding of the nature of reality, and they wanted to learn about Yahweh and learn about the law and learn about the way in which we were to live. They hadn't gone whole hog, if you'll pardon the joke there, they hadn't gone whole hog and become Jews uh, by being circumcised, if they were men, or cooking kosher and taking care of the, the proper way to make clothing out of single thread, uh, if, if they were women. No, they had not gone and become Jews but they were considered God-fearers or righteous Gentiles. They were Gentiles who had studied the Torah. And so they had come also with the Jews up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And they wanted to see jesus they wanted to meet jesus they wanted to see this messiah the one whom many were saying was the messiah they wanted to see jesus and hear from him what he would have to say and how he would lead them on the way they wanted to see what jesus would have to say about the life that they were to live and about who he was And what Jesus says is not really what we expect in many ways. First of all, it almost seems as though he blows off the request to see him. Because what does he say? His answer is straightforward and yet goes around the bend. Jesus' answer, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, Philip and Andrew have said, These Gentiles want to see you. And Jesus' response is, The time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, at first, that's weird and strange and exciting. I'm sure the disciples were rejoicing in that first sentence Woohoo! It's time! It's finally time. After all, Messiahs are supposed to be glorified. The Jewish people had a conception, several conceptions of messiahship. They expected a military messiah, a a, a ruling general who would come and defeat the occupying forces of the Roman Empire and overthrow those Gentiles that had come to pervert their society, pervert their culture, take them over and oppress them. They had this understanding of the messiah who would lead armies, armies of the kingdom of David to defeat the occupation and then to go out and establish the kingdom of David first in Judea and Galilee and then in the surrounding communities and finally all over the world. That was the military conquering Messiah. They also expe- expected a high priest Messiah who would come to reestablish right worship in the temple. Up until this time, it was believed by many that the Sadducees in Compromising themselves in accepting the Roman occupation had allowed right worship in the temple to go astray, to go awry. And so the Messiah was to come and reestablish right worship, right sacrifice, right ritual, right practices in the temple in Jerusalem. So a high priestly Messiah was expected. And a kingly messiah, kind of related to this military ruler messiah, a kingly messiah would come to establish the kingdom of David and to sit on a throne and rule the kingdom. And then there was the righteous messiah, the one who would come, kind of connected with the high priestly messiah, the one who would come to establish righteousness in the land, proper treatment of people, how to treat your neighbor, how to speak With grace and peace, how to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and care for the poor and the widows and the orphans, the righteous Messiah who would come to establish righteousness in the land. There were these different competing and connecting and complementing conceptions of Messiahship, and they all seemed to float around in the period, in the region, in the time of Jesus. But nowhere In all of this, nowhere was there a Jesus or a Messiah who would die on a cross. Nowhere was there a conception of a Messiah who would be defeated, who would be killed, who would be murdered, who would be crucified, who would die. Messiahs don't die. They're victorious. Messiahs don't get sacrificed to themselves. They do the sacrificing. Messiahs don't die. And certainly not at the hands of those that they are supposed to be overthrowing, the Romans. So this concept, this idea of a suffering and dying Messiah was one that was foreign to their way of thinking. It came along after Jesus actually did it. And the church, looking backwards, said, "Aha, we miss this conception of messiahship. We missed this conception. We thought that the suffering servant was just about the whole people of Israel, but Jesus showed us that it was about him. And that true anointedness means self-giving. Jesus' response begins with something that they wanted to hear. "It's time for the Son of Man to be glorified." Woohoo!" The word there that's used is doxa. We get the word doxology from doxa. We know what doxologies are. We sing them every Sunday. Hmm. Huh. In this, they had their expectation that... The Son of Man, Jesus, the Messiah, would be glorified. And they, the disciples, would be on the ground floor of this new kingdom of David, this new right way of worship, this new way of caring for the people, this new kingdom of God on earth. So that first sentence is what they were listening for and what they were wanting to hear. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The next sentence, probably Floridum. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives will lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. I'm sure that after going woohoo over this business about the Messiah being glorified, these words must have caused the disciples to go, Oh, no. Death? Being buried? Dying? That's not in, that wasn't in the job description. That's not what we're looking to follow. That's not what a Messiah is supposed to do In be. We want to follow the Messiah into the kingdom of God. And then the church does the same thing today. We sing hymns that talk about Jesus and me. And we talk about in our singing, oh, we want to cling to the old rugged cross. And we sing hymns like number 338, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. I can hear my Savior calling. I can hear my Savior calling. I can... Hear my Savior calling, take thy cross and follow me. Huh? Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. Where he leads me, I will follow. I'll go with him, with him all the way really really the church is interested in this conquering messiah just like the disciples the church is interesting, interested in this victorious the Messiah. The church is interested in this Messiah that sits on a throne that is victorious, victory in Jesus. We want to sing it, we want to proclaim it, we want to celebrate it, and rightfully so. But to get to the victory in Jesus, to get to the Christ on the high throne, to get to the royal priesthood of Christ Jesus, you first have to go to the cross. You first have to give up yourself. To follow Jesus, we must take up our crosses. To follow Jesus, we must do what Jesus did. And that means giving up of ourselves. Because you see, to be a disciple, to be a disciplined follower of Jesus means that it's not about us it's not about us, it's not about our families it's not about our personal wants and dreams and desires and hopes and agenda it's about Jesus and Jesus' agenda it's about God and God's agenda not about us and yet so frequently we act and speak and do things that very clearly say that we think it's about us. Just watch us at church council meetings, at general and annual conference sessions. It's about us. Look what we've done. Look how much we've raised. Look what buildings we've built. Look what legislation we've passed. Look how we've established things so that people can know how they're supposed to live their lives. In reality, we want it our way. We want things our way. We want to swim in the whiskey and breathe in the tobacco and chow down on the chocolate rather than live in the soil, rather than be buried. In the soil with Jesus. Lent is about recognizing that this religious life is not about us. It's not about me and it's not about you. It's about recognizing that God is calling us to be for Christ and for others. If Christmas if the seasons of Advent and then Christmas are about the recognition, accepting, and proclamation of the incarnation and birth of Jesus the Messiah, the season of Lent and then Easter is about recognizing that we are the reason He died. If Christmas is about celebrating Christ, Lent, is about remembering the reason he went to the cross. The reason he came and then made of himself a sacrifice. And it's not the Jews who killed Jesus and it's not even really the Romans who killed Jesus even though they drove the nails. It's us. It's Christian In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and in John, it says very clearly that Jesus is a friend of sinners. And we ought to be rejoicing in that, but so frequently the church seems to say, oh no, that can't be the case. Jesus is a friend of the righteous people. Sorry. Jesus is a friend of those who've been pushed to the edges of society, those who've been pushed and marginalized all the way out of society, those who've been denied access to the kingdom, those who've been denied access to grace, those who've been told by the very church that's supposed to proclaim Jesus that you are not welcome. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And if we are honest, that includes us. And this time in Lent is a time to get ready To recognize our culpability in the death of Jesus, in His sacrifice for us, it's a time to be ready to recognize that we are the reason for this season. Do we want to follow Jesus? Where he leads me I will follow. Where he leads me I will follow. I'll go with him, with him all the way? Really? We sing these hymns. We don't even hear the words to them. I'll go with him through the judgment. I'll go with him through the judgment. I'll go with him through the judgment. I'll go with him, with him all the way? Really? 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 Or like the disciples, will we run? My own confession is that so frequently, like the disciples, when faced with the enormous responsibility of giving up the self, of dying to self, so that I may live for Christ when faced with the enormous responsibility of realizing that it's not about me, but about Christ, about the kingdom of God, I fail, and I run. And Lent is a time to face that fact, face that reality about ourselves, and instead turn to face Christ. and accept, truly accept the grace and glory that He will then give if only we will take up our crosses and follow Him. As we come to the close of this Lent over the next week, as we come to the close of this Lent. Let us be cognizant. Let us be aware. Let us be looking around ourselves and realizing those things in our lives which keep us from following Jesus, which keep us from taking up our cross and following in His footsteps, that keep us from proclaiming the good news and becoming the good news for others. And then, in Holy Week, I invite us to take those things and bring them to the altar and leave them at the foot of the cross where they belong and then take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Yes, into the soil so that we can then when we get to Easter see Him raised in victory and celebrate the love and forgiveness, the life eternal that we have in Jesus our Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son.